0: following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Not too many years ago, I had the opportunity to witness one of the most uh, unbelievable boxing matches in my In my life, Um, it was the famed uh, Muhammad Ali against uh, a a guy who was uh, nicknamed Smoking Joe Frazier. And uh, if you uh, like boxing, you know, these days we don't uh, have um, some of the greatest boxers anymore, some of those tacticians. But in this particular uh, boxing match, it was um, dubbed the Thriller in Manila and uh, 15 rounds. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, three minutes around 15 rounds, two of the most hard hitting men on the planet. So 45 minutes of somebody hitting you in the face, in the kidney, the heart, I mean, just everywhere, of course, hopefully no low blows. And so they fought and they fought and they fought. And at the end of the max uh, of, the, of the of the boxing match, Muhammad Ali fell to the canvas in just sheer exhaustion. And so they put um, uh, a microphone uh, right before him and just asked him how he felt. And I remember the words he says. He says, "This is the closest I've ever come to death." And so here I am watching these two guys, wondering what would make two men want to fight that hard, that long, even to the point that one of them would be thinking that um, he was close to death. And so, of course, you know, the simple thing that we would think of is just, well, both of those guys wanted to win. And um, from that match, Muhammad Ali won the fight and he went on to fight many, many years. And of course, Joe Frazier as well. And so when I'm thinking about, you know, uh, boxers and what it must take to the preparation and the training and all the commitment, one of the things that I thought of is that when they get into that ring, they have to be determined That nothing will stop them. They have to think of themselves in the sense that it doesn't matter how uh, much, how much, uh, uh, how much this guy maybe outweighs me, uh, how much taller this guy is, whatever the case may be. I am determined that I'm going to stick in there all the way to the end. And of course, my hope and my, and my, and my um, desire is at the end that they would lift my hands up and I'll be crowned the victor. Well, for those of us as believers in Christ, especially those of us that are brothers in Christ, yeah, I started asking myself, um, is there anything that would motivate us to be willing to give our lives or lay our lives on the line, uh, just like those two guys did you know, that night in Manila? And I think it is following the teachings, following the directions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to look at Acts chapter 5. Because I believe Acts chapter 5 has um, some great instructions for us as it relates to the life of a disciple. And all of us have been called to be a disciple. And one of the things that Jesus said just before he was taken up into heaven, he said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You, heard, you know the phrase, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then he says, teaching them. And just in case they were a little nervous about doing something like that, he gave them this reminder. He says, and lo, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so one of the things that the text tells us is that he wants us as a part of our natural day to be going on a consistent basis and making disciples. But it's very difficult to make a disciple Apart from the word of God, it's difficult to make a disciple apart from the message that comes from the word of God. Now, Jesus understood this and Jesus understood how difficult it was to talk to someone else about changing their lives. And so what he does back in the first chapter of the book of Acts, verse eight, he says, I know that you're going to need some special power in order to accomplish this. So in verse eight, he says, I want you to go in Jerusalem. I want you to wait and you're going to receive power. And when you receive this power, what I want you to do, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. Of course, we all know the story. They did that the day of Pentecost came chapter two of the book of Acts, this great phenomenon, And uh, it was something that stayed with them. They never forgot that experience of Acts chapter two for the rest of their lives. And if you read the book of Acts, you actually see that pattern following the gospel starts there in Jerusalem and moves to Judea. It moves to Samaria in Acts chapter eight. And then through the apostle Paul, the gospel spreads to the other parts of the earth. And in Acts chapter five, there's a very, this is a very interesting passage. It's right on the heels of chapter five, verse one, where this man and this woman have a piece of property. And um, they say that they're going to give it to the disciples give it to the apostles to be used for the ministry. But they don't fully, they're not fully truthful about the whole situation. And you probably know the text as a result of that, because of this lie, um, the man, Ananias, he falls dead. They bring his wife in. They ask his wife, you know, some of the very same questions. She sides with the husband. And, of course, she ends up dead as well. And then if you look at verse 13 of chapter 5, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And it says, And they were all together. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But I want you to focus your attention here on verse um, 17. It says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the, the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and of the chief priests heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain said, Of the officers went and brought them. But not by force. For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27. And when they had brought them. They set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. Now watch verse 28. Saying we strictly charged you. Not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so as I begin to. Look at this. I asked myself the question, what, would, what was it that made these guys so determined? Now, here they are. They're doing their thing. They're sharing the gospel and it lands them in prison. They're in prison. An angel approaches them and tells them, hey, frees them, tells them to go back to the very same place where they already encountered all this difficulty. Now, let me just kind of ask a question. If you had done something or gone to a particular place that caused you to land in prison, how quickly would you be willing to go right back to that same place? Yeah, I, I, I doubt very seriously if you would want to repeat that very same thing. But for whatever reason, they were so determined that it says they went right back and they began to teach the people even to the point that in verse 28, they said, we told you not to share anything else in this name. He says, but what you've done, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And so what I want to do, I want to ask several questions of this passage. What would motivate? What would push the disciples, the apostles to the point that they would be willing to even take the chance of being thrown in prison again? Or maybe even further this time, maybe even their death. And I think we see it in beginning at verse, 20, verse 29. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And I want you to this We must obey God rather than men. What I think motivated them was their sheer obedience to what the Lord had told them to do. Obedience. We remember even back in the book of Samuel where the Lord tells Saul, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. I told you what to do. I told you to go and I told you to wipe out all the people. And yet you bring back what you wanted to offer me. You brought back something that you thought would please me. So what pleases me is when you do what I say. So I want you to think about that even in your own life. Has the Lord spoken to you? Is there something that you know he's clearly told you to do? And then the question is, have you obeyed? The Lord has given me an opportunity to share the gospel all over the country. And oftentimes when I go somewhere, someone will pull me aside after speaking and a guy will come up to me and he will say, well, I know what the Lord wants me to do. It's very, very clear. Then I'll ask the next question. Well, are you doing it? And oftentimes the response is, well, no, I'm trying to do this. Well, no, I'm not sure if I can do this. Well, here's what I've learned. When the Lord calls you to do something. He equips you with what you need to complete the task. When he calls you to do something, he equips you with what you need. He gives you the giftedness, he gives you the training to complete the task. Remember Moses? Moses had training. Well, the Lord took him out in the wilderness for 40 years, being a sheep herder, because the Lord knew that he was going to spend the next 40 years leading the children of Israel even in the wilderness. And so Moses made all these excuses to God. You remember that at the burning bush? I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do that. And the Lord said, hey, don't worry. I've called you to do something. When I've called you to do something, I've given you the gifts and the talents and the strengths to accomplish it. All I want you to do is just obey. And so they said, between our two choices, between doing what you tell us to do, you're telling us don't say anything else about this guy. Don't say anything else about his teaching. Don't say anything else about his lifestyle. Don't say anything else about his healing. Don't say anything else, especially this lie about he rose from the dead. But they said, you know what? We cannot help but discuss what we've not only seen, not only what we've heard. And so we are going to obey God instead of obeying you. Then there's something else that I noticed. Look at verse 30. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand, a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, not only what made them so determined in terms of their obedience, but second of all, God gave them a very clear message. Because oftentimes, you know, when I'm thinking about my neighbor, I'm thinking about my coworker. You know, I want to share the gospel with him, but I don't always know how to do it. I don't always know what should I say. And in this case, he made it very, very clear. He says, here's what your message is to be. The message is exactly what Jesus did. He says, Jesus was hung on a tree. And why? We all know. He was hung there for our sins very, very clear in the book of Isaiah chapter 53, that God made a determination eons ago that he was going to send his son, Jesus. Even the book of Revelation pictures him as a lamb slain before the foundations of the world. And so the key is that had Jesus not died, there would be no opportunity for repentance. And so it was critical that Jesus be crucified. Oftentimes with my students at the seminary, I ask them, I says, can you just give me a short definition, a definition of what the gospel is? And here's what it is. It's the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And someone pushes you on that point a little bit. Here's what I want you to give them. I want you to take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul gives the most concise, the most clear message of what the gospel is. He says, first of all, I want you to know that Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures. Then I want you to know that Jesus was buried according to the scriptures. Then I want you to know that Jesus rose from the dead and not just according to the scriptures. But Paul says there were over 500 people that saw him alive. And then Paul says, after you've talked to those 500 people and asked them, then you can even talk to me. Paul says, I saw him myself. And so I know that he's alive. And so their message was real clear. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And so as we're thinking about talking to our friends, we're thinking about talking to our neighbors. You know, you don't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be deep. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to do it. Basically, tell them what happened to you. Give your own personal testimony. Now, if you are a believer, you should have a testimony. Oftentimes, I'll get someone when I was pastoring to join my church. And I'll say, uh, as part of the new members training, well, could you just kind of tell me a little bit about yourself and, um, you know, how you came to know Christ? And oftentimes, yeah, I'll get something like this. Well, um, as long as I can remember, I've been a Christian. Well, that's impossible. None of us have been a Christian from birth. Amen, someone. There was a point in time when you trusted Christ as your Savior. For me, it was September the 10th, 1973 at 920 p.m., September the 10th. 1973 at 9:20 p.m. while I was on the phone talking with a prudential insurance salesman. This insurance salesman was on the phone and he was talking to me and he was saying, Willie, he said, Willie, you need a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, well, sir, I don't think I don't think so, because, you know, look, as a little bitty kid, I was baptized in um um, Progressive Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. And so all you need is just to be baptized. And he said to me that day, and I'll never forget. He says, Willie, he said, let me tell you something. He says, not only uh, are you a sinner, but all you all you are is a wet sinner. <laughs> he said, you went, in, you went in the water dry and you came out wet. He says, water baptism doesn't save you. And I fought with that guy for over an hour because I had been told, you know, you hear the gospel, you come forward, you take the preacher's hand, you go in the water, and that makes you a Christian. Well, Being baptized and watered is not what makes you a Christian. It's trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so I want to just ask you the question today. Have you trusted him as your own personal Savior? Because guess what? You cannot preach about someone that you don't know. You cannot preach about someone that you don't have an intimate relationship with. Because if you were to ask me, tell, tell me something about your wife. Man, I could just go on and on and on and on about my wife. I can tell you some very detailed things about my wife. Why? Because I haven't just known her from a distance. I know her up close and personal. And see, what I found over the years, because of my up close and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't have to manufacture anything when I'm talking to people about him. All I need to do is just tell them what he's done for me. Amen? Do you have a testimony? Has he done something for you? I wouldn't be surprised if we just opened it up and just guys just stand up and share one after one. Because oftentimes I get these students, you know, uh, first first year students at the seminary. And part of the things that they have to do is they have to write something. They have to write something to demonstrate to us that they are believers. And man, I read some of these things and man, you would be marveled at some of the things that I have heard that have that that has happened in the lives of believers. I mean, miracles. I mean, modern day miracles where God took them from a terrible situation as the old people would say place their foot on a solid rock and their life has never been the same and so again what would make these two boxers so determined that they after 45 minutes of punishing each other that neither of the two would quit what would make these disciples after being told don't go back and do it again because you look you just got out of prison? And if you go back again, you might be taking the chance of being put in prison. And maybe even this time, it might even mean your death. Well, what made them determined is they wanted to obey God more than obey not only their feelings, but obey others. Second of all, they got a very, very, very clear message. What's that message? Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Jesus Christ died so people might experience repentance of their sins. And then finally, If you look with me at verse 33, it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside a little while. And then he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. 36. For before these days, the rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined himself. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After that, after him, Judas, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, for this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had charged and called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. This is the second time they've been warned. And then here's what verse 41 says. And every time I read this, it just blows my mind. And let's be honest. Let's see if we could do this. Second time in jail. Now this time we get beaten. And it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer, to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Would you do it? Prison once. Prison a second time. After the second time, you get beat. And after they were beaten, they leave the council with this on their lips. Thank God that we suffered for his name. Rejoicing just after being beaten because we suffered. Not for wrong, we suffered for right. And they were so fired up, it says, they continued after that and they didn't cease Teaching and preaching Jesus. So the last word I want to give you is the manner or attitude in which they went about um, their business. I had a young gang member in Compton, California. I was talking to him and I said, um, why are you so committed to the gang? What is it that you what, what is it about just this this gang violence? Well, first of all, he says that. Um. They're really the only family he ever had. And I said, well, are you a believer? He says, well, no. He said, I used to go to church. And I said, well, why don't you attend church anymore? He said, preacher, let me tell you something. He said, my problem has never really been with God or with Jesus Christ. He said, the real reason why I don't go to church is Christians. And as he said that to me, it just kind of messed with me a little bit. What are you saying? He said that as I saw the lives of believers, especially my dad and my uncles, some other guys I went to school, when I saw their lives, they said one thing, they lived another way. And that's what he was really saying is that what pushed him out of church was hypocrites. Now, the good news is that that wouldn't apply to any of us here because we know on a consistent, days, on a consistent basis every day we live lives that are truly Godly, biblical, and we're consistent with that. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, maybe not always. Now, it's not our intent to ever live in a, in a, in a, in a Hippocratic way. That's, that's not our desire, but I find there are sometimes that what I say and the way I live are not always consistent. And it was the attitude that they had. It was the manner in which they went about their business. They said, even if it means that we get beat, even if if, even if it means that we suffer for sharing the gospel, we're willing to do it because it says they continued. They did not cease every day from that point on. They kept on teaching and preaching, knowing that that maybe the next time it could land them in prison. Maybe the next time it wouldn't just be beaten this time. Maybe the next time it would actually be their death. And guys, let me tell you, we're dealing with a whole culture. We're dealing with a whole culture that's just looking for someone or something to be committed to. I want to tell you something sad, and I'm not, I'm not proud of this. Before I became a believer, there was a very good friend of mine that had embraced this group called the Nation of Islam. At this particular time, its leader was a man named uh, Elijah Muhammad. Now it's being led by a guy named Louis Farrakhan. I don't know how much you know about this particular group. But it's a cult. It's, be- it's basically a racist group spewing racist uh, ideologies. But my friend had embraced this group. And I was one of these guys that, hey, if it's good for my friend, it must be good for me. And at that particular time, this was in the early 70s, that they were preaching, I mean, strong hate, especially someone who was white. So what my friend was saying that all white people are devils. Whatever we need, whatever we can do to try to hurt these people, whatever we can do to separate ourselves from these people, that was their basic philosophy. And I have to tell you, as a high school student, I went through some difficult things. When I was in the fifth grade, my parents moved from an all black neighborhood to an all-white neighborhood, and when we moved from that black neighborhood to the white neighborhood, every day going to school, I would get called the N-word, Black Sambo, uh, Chocolate Boy, Hershey Bar. I'd get spit on. I'd get beat up. Kids would take my lunch money, and I'd come home all battered and bruised, and I would say to my mother, Mama, why, why did you move us here? And she would say to me, because we want you and your brother to have a better life. Uh, yeah, this is better. <laughs> this is a better life. And so, as a result of that, now I'm in grammar school, I go to high school, 15 African Americans in a school of about maybe seven or eight hundred. And so, the very same thing continued in high school. So, by the time I got out of high school, thinking about going into the military, thinking about going into college, I went into the military, went into the Air Force. When I got to the Air Force on my Air Force base, the very same thing happened to me. So when I got discharged and I met up with my friend, my friend was still involved with this group. And I said, that's the group I need to. That's the group because they're committed. I, I mean, I see them out on the streets. I see them even willing to die. I, that's the group I want to be a part of. So he gave me a book and said, here's the book I want you to read. Once you to think about joining the group. So I bought the group, I bought the book rather to my house. And before I ever had a chance to read the book, my wife had started attending a Bible study about two blocks down the house, down the street. And so this man from the Bible study called me and he says, Willie, I'd like to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I said, well, um, don't worry about that, sir. I've already got one, but I really don't have anything to do with Christianity. I don't think Christianity is right for me, but I can tell you what is right for me. This group called the Nation of Islam. So he called me on the phone as I'm talking to him on the phone, on my couch, on my sofa, on the left-hand side of the sofa was this book that I was about ready to read to join this organization. But as I'm talking to him on the phone, something said to me from my mother, Willie, any religion that preached hate, hating someone that you've never met, hating someone really for no purpose, for really no reason, could not be of God. And so I said to that man, I said, sir, I'd like to become a Christian. I'd like to become a real Christian. Tell me what to do. So he says, "Here, what you need to do? Are you willing to confess your sins? Yes, sir. Have you committed sins? Yes, sir. Well, pray this prayer. Bowed my head while I was on the phone and I prayed the prayer. And after I finished, I opened my eyes and I said, sir, do I need to pray again? He says, well, why are you asking that? He says, well, when I was a kid, you know, whenever you became a Christian, you know, you had some kind of special tingle happen to you. You know, when you, when you, you know, you, you get these special feelings and you run around the church and you, you know, you jump pews or something. And he said, look, Willie. Christianity has nothing to do with a bunch of emotions. It has everything to do with the truth of the gospel. And so guys, that night I gave my life to Jesus. I called my friend and I said, there's no way that I could ever join this group because God has told me because he loves all I need to love all. And so now what motivates me, what motivates me to do what I do? I'm motivated out of obedience I'm motivated because I was given a clear message. I'm motivated because I'm willing to do whatever it takes, even if that means to go to jail, even if that means my life, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the determination that we see in the lives of these Disciples, these apostles. Imprisoned. Told to go back to the same place and preach it again. Imprisoned again. This time they were beaten. But instead of leaving the presence of these people having been beaten, complaining about why did we ever do that? We should never do that again. Instead, they leave rejoicing and they go back. And they continue the very same preaching and teaching that they did at the beginning. That type of determination should be ours. Because if you've given us a calling, you've also given us the tools and you've given us the power to fulfill that calling. So, Lord, I don't know what round it may be in our lives. We may be in the 10th round. We may be so tired, so tired of just life. And we just said, I just want to rest for a while. But you know what, Lord, we can't. We've got to continue until the fight is over. Because when the fight is over, the Apostle Paul says, there will be a crown for us. There will be a hug from us, for us. There will be our coach at the finish line saying, you finished, you finished well. Now I've got a special place, a special mansion just for you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.